of my most extraordinary data scientists here in the UK came to me and said, David, I've worked for the last three months and I've reduced the time it takes to do this extraordinary piece of analysis from seven days to seven hours. And I went, well, that's kind of interesting. Why not seven milliseconds? One of my guys presented at the Google conference because of our use of Dataproc was the hottest anywhere outside of banking. Um, that was kind of cool for us, right? If you act like a parent to the team, the team will act like children. If you act like a peer to the team, then the peers will gang up on you and give you a hard time and you just hope that that takes you to a better place. have great opportunities, just go for them. This is Seonet TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with David Jack, who is the CTO and CPO of Dunhumby. A very warm welcome, David. Thank you so much. David has more than 30 years of experience in the IT industry on very different fronts. He worked for the vendors such as Novell and Citrix. He worked in the venture capital space and he was also an entrepreneur when, where he was building financial trading systems. David, you have been CIO, CTO uh, for several uh, companies such as Trainline.com, Hyperion Insurance and Metapack. And now for the last two and a half years, you are the chief technology and the chief product officer of Dunhumby, which is, by the way, the world's leading uh, company in customer data science. So, David, again, a very warm welcome. Why don't we start with you explaining a little bit who you are and how did you arrive in this wonderful, wonderful position? Thanks for the, the warm welcome first. Um, I have to, to say you make me sound terribly old, so I'm never going to forgive you <laughs> for that. 30 years, wow. Um, when I have most of my team and you know, a bunch of graduates joining and realizing that I'm literally old enough to be their parent. Um, I, I think there's the, the theme throughout my career has been one of just a series of really wonderful accidents. Um, mm -hmm. Halfway through my internship at IBM, when, um, I was offered a job with a US software business. I didn't really fancy going and doing my finals and I thought that going and working in California and the UK was kind of cooler. I did it, it was fun, it was brilliant and it worked out. Um, I don't think my parents have yet forgiven me for the, the worry <laughs> that, I, that I gave them at the time. And then a whole series of other accidents and just following opportunities which playing it back in this, in this instance makes it sound like a really well curated and orchestrated career. <laughs> and as we all know, it's never such a thing. You know, on the occasion that I was literally holding back a bailiff at the front door of one of the businesses that I was running whilst my team were moving servers out the back door and loading them into their cars, or on the occasion that I was trying to figure out how did I pay my team and I ran out of money and I had to give them my car, and when I say my car, I actually gave them my girlfriend's car. Um, you know, all of those moments at the time were awful um, and now make for great anecdotes. So accidentally ended up in what I think genuinely is one of the coolest CTO jobs in the world right now. Okay, so 
Tell us a little bit, Dunhambi is not um, a very known brand, let's say. So it's, it's a bit of a, a secret. So tell us what is this company all about and what is it really, really good at? Okay, there's, there's sort of three different ways of describing us. There's the, the sort of, the, the, the super boring way, okay? Which is we are a 30-year-old analytics business, best known for working with the likes of Tesco in, in harnessing the value of their, um, their data. Now, mm -hmm. isn't it incredible that we're a 30-year-old UK-headquartered analytics business that most people have never heard about? So let me give you a slightly more pretty, exciting... Pretty big. Yeah, yeah it's pretty it, big. Indeed. You have more than 3,000 people. Yeah. Exactly. So let me give you a kind of slightly less English description. Um, you know, we are on almost every measure the world's most successful data science business. We have over 500 data scientists sitting in my team, which I believe, outside of a, probably the likes of Google, Amazon, um, and Microsoft, is probably the largest independent team. Um, we, we analyze, oh, well, let's, let's take a look, over a billion basket transactions a day. We analyze probably the, net, the gross value of half a trillion dollars of value a day in, in, in mm -hmm. terms of behavioral analytics. Um, and my favorite, my favorite number, because we just surpassed this a couple of weeks ago, over a billion consumers are on a daily basis affected by my analytics, my insights wow. and my models. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't because we're terribly kind of um, uh, sort of bold about this. It is the fact that that shows a real scale of the responsibility and the excitement of what we do. Um, so mm -hmm. I hope that that describes it. We actually operate in a gazillion countries. We've got over two and a half, three thousand different people in our team around the world. Um, and I would used to say that we have um, 46 offices, but actually we have now two and a half thousand offices <laughs> strung together with an extraordinary technical framework and operating matrix. Okay. And so what you what Don Hamby does is you analyze customer data that's that's the origin and right and you consult your, your customer your, so your customers are the Tescos and uh, all the big retailers around the world correct yeah I mean there's sort of again a couple of layers to how we make money and how we deliver value to our clients but there's a, there's a little adage in the business which I I have to admit I took over two years to really understand so the adage goes, customer first. So here was where the mistake I, met, I made, which was I assumed that meant our customers. Let's put our customers first. And it isn't. The, okay. Our mantra as a business is persuading retailers to put their customers first by providing the best product, the best pricing, the best assortment, the best um, uh, adaption of their supply chains, all of those things. And if they do that using insight, then there's a beautiful balanced economy of the consumer getting the right product at the right price, the retailer, of course, making money, and the CPGs also finding a perfect balance in that value chain as well. Um, now, how we deliver that is, as I said, we look at all the transactional data um, of our clients um, and extract insights from that. And and then provide that back to our clients even by, e by either a sort of 
advisory service at one end, as in real humans, explaining to board level directors of these retailers where to take their strategy, all the way down to daily insights on you know, how has your range behaved in the last few minutes for hours, days, even further into how, what is the best promotion, what's the best pricing um, that would have, um, uh, that you should deploy for your customers. And then we even actually have a variety of tools and products that deliver that promotion as well. But the real piece is that transactional ingestion, drawing all the insights out and then sharing it through human and machine interfaces, if you think of it as grandly as that. Okay. Now, you've been at Dunham before now over two years. Can you tell us a little bit about the transformations that uh, the, the, the organization is going through right now that have, have been implemented the last couple of years? How is this company changing? So there's two ways of doing this, two ways of explaining it. There's the boring route, which is it's all about movement out of our DCs to cloud. It's all about taking inefficiencies out of our operations and our systems and use of automation, blah, blah, blah. That's so boring mm -hmm. and it is so much hygiene for us. The really interesting transformations um, are actually human ones. Um, and again, that sounds a little bit grandiose, but it's for real, okay? So, so the first thing I did when I joined two and a half years ago, and it was a disastrous statement, so bear with me. I, we were doing an all hands, we, we ran one in India, one in um, uh, Mexico and one in the UK. And the line I used was the following one. My vision, my grand vision is that we will use machines for machine work and people for people work. And half my team then just polished their CVs thinking they were out of a job. They were incredibly threatened by the idea of that this is all, all a push to optimizing and, mm -hmm. uh, and reducing cost. And of course, the, the much more sophisticated, more exacting and more real piece there is, I don't want to hire all this incredible intellect and then having, having, using it for really dumbass things. And if I yep. look at how we develop our models and our, our analytics, so much of it becomes a little bit repetitious, it's, it's, it's inefficient, and I want to um, use the machines and the modeling that we do there to run that side of the business and then lift up our people to look further into the future and really improve what we're doing. And then the other piece of, which is also a human transformation, which is, again, miss positioned, it sounds threatening, which is just making our resources fungible. You know, mm -hmm. we, we have this extraordinary distributed team around the world, and I'm trying to break desperately with our clients the connection to, I'm a client, I'm sitting in North America, therefore I expect to see my team in my office, to, you're a client of ours, why wouldn't you want to harness all the expertise of the 1,200 people that work for me around the world in every continent? Mm -hmm. And one of the, the interesting side effects of changing working patterns over the last six months is that message is finally beginning to land because the addiction to seeing people face to face has frankly been broken out of necessity. And now people are seeing this extraordinary um, um, lifeblood of, of skills that are being harnessed from um, North America, from Scandinavia, from India, Asia, etc. So that's the other, the other piece. 
And then the last one, and this is the real, um, I guess, you know, it's slightly um, esoteric piece, which is some of the research science that we do stops being um, simply how many more carrots should you put on the sh your shelf or how should you price your chocolate bar. It actually moves into the psychology of how people make decisions. And our behavioral psychology work that we do, um, and we sponsor a number of PhDs and we publish papers. In fact, we just won a prize in a very, a very significant journal on some of the work we did on topic modeling, um, is right on the edges of exploring how we make decisions as humans, and not just to be harnessed for you know, uh, uh, selling more stuff, but to really change the experience of a consumer to, mm -hmm. um, and fit how we make decisions to what they buy, rather than forcing them to buy and then make them make a decision. Now that feels a very lofty tr transformation, but it's a pretty cool one, I think. And with the work that we do with various universities around the world, and just frankly, just some of the extraordinary raw talent that's in my team that petrifies me, um, uh, it, it's actually harnessable. So David, if you had to summarize, what is it that really makes Dunhumby different? I could give you all the marketing spiel and you could read it from our website and everything else, but from, a, from my perspective, the two things that really set us apart, and it's, you know, shame on me, it's taken me two and a half years to really understand this, is that we truly believe that putting the customer, and by the customer I mean the consumer, first for a retailer, creates a very virtuous economy and ecology between the consumer having the best priced, best positioned product, the retailer obviously serving their customer well, and the CPG getting the best price um, and position and promotion of that product. And if you focus in that way and that you stop optimizing for one outcome and you only optimize for the customer first, good things happen and we enable that. The other thing that always strikes me, and I, I, as I said, I was in a board meeting once and being challenged by one of our non-execs exactly along those lines, what makes us different? And I quickly did a calculation. And I looked them in the eye and said, we have 3,000 years of retail data science experience. Obviously, we didn't get everything right in those 3,000 years, but there's this, this extraordinary data science asset made up of people, technology and models that represents 3,000 years of activity. And that's what I want to add to, I want to find, I want to exploit and extend over the coming years. Yeah. Now, Dunhumby, when you arrived, was, was mostly a services organization and you're making a change, you're creating a services and a product organization and you're the, the chief product officer. So can you Talk a little bit about how you productized uh, some of the services and, and, and how that's going. Okay. I mean, first thing is, you know, the, the, the sort of slightly dirty secret is that we always have positioned ourselves as a technology services and consulting business. Um, yep. But really, it's this human-powered engine with a huge number of tools and technology sitting behind that engine. And every time that we have a, a product shortfall or a... Uh, an inability to deliver something that our client wants, we know we can always turn to our applied data scientists to fill that space. The, 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 the 
The, the, the goal for us is to move that equation around and say, let's ensure that we have um, operational services that just that churn out the day-to-day, -day, that we have products that are easy to deploy to self-commission, to, to even self-provision. Um, but we, we always see that our consulting team and our data scientists are still part of the proposition that we make to our client. So it's never removing one it's more about the balance and how we forward it. Now, to your question, um, how do we do it? We just do it in little tiny baby steps every day of the week, right? Some, sometimes it's just simply saying, well, let's make it a product. And everybody looks around the room and goes, well, well what does that mean, right? Well, how about it's something that it's all the same version that every single one of our clients are using? Let's say that it's only one technical stack that, de that it's deployed against. Let's say it is something that takes minutes to deploy rather than months to deploy. All of those aspects. Yep. And what we've done across um, our portfolio with our solutions and product teams is figuring out where the biggest wins are on improving the level of productiveness of the various elements of our technology. The other mm -hmm. piece, and it took, some, took me some time, you know, I've spent a career in product development um, it took me some time also to get comfortable with the idea that some of what we do will always remain a service and some of what we do will always remain something built on top of our systems. And that balancing, I think, is the really crucial aspect because every retailer we work with has a different organisational flow, different um, systems they use, different business processes. And to say, no, here is the business process you should use, here is the data structures you should use, is clearly an extraordinarily arrogant thing for us to say. We do nudge people, and in fact, we've, we, last year, part of my team, we launched a data consulting team. And it sounds, again, quite a grand thing for us to do, but actually just simply going in early to a retailer and, and explaining and helping them prepare the data for us has been has unlocked a huge number of accounts um, because they simply couldn't get past the first hurdle of well if you could just give us your till data then we'll, we'll rock on ah yes <laughs> well we've got 14 different till system we've got five different countries none of the categories actually match you know all of those things that are required before you can start doing the analytics so and then and then the last piece is we've actually targeted some standalone again, I, I'm, I'm always a little bit dubious about saying innovation products where we've taken a little bit of our risk capital and we, we run our own VC fund, um, a okay. very modest one within the team. Um, so we invest in early stage startups um, and that creates another route to products for us. But it also means that we've put some of our capital into products that may never make us hundreds of millions. They may be relatively modest, um, but, they, but we've targeted them at places in our portfolio that we think are really keys to unlocking parts of our business. And we've launched two this year. One which is all around understanding, or essentially gathering primary data from consumers, which is something typically we don't do, we go via retailers. Mm -hmm. And the other is, over the last three years, we've built a machine learning platform for all of our data scientists and then we figured out we have one of the best machine learning platforms in the world because it's clearly for retail data science. 
and we've productized it and we've launched it with Microsoft in the last few months. So it, it's a combination of all those things. But I, to, to, be, um, to be honest and frank, it's baby steps as we move the dials. And of course, the biggest mm -hmm. part of that is none of that matters if we can't maintain availability, if we can't maintain security and we can't make distinctions between client A and client B. So there's a, a huge amount of work under the surface of simply establishing our basics as well. Okay, let's talk about the three dimensions, if you want, of, of, of doing, of creating change, of doing innovation, of doing transformation. And, and, and for me, they are to create a, a culture of transformation. Mm -hmm. the, the means that you need the right processes for transformation and that you need the right technology to, uh, for your transformation. So let's talk about culture first. So what cultural changes uh, have you implemented at Dunhambi and, 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 and exactly how did you do that? What, what change was needed there on the cultural, on the people level? Sure. I mean, I would love to be um, so good that I, feel, that I would feel that I am profoundly affecting the culture of the business. It's just not true, right? Um, you know, I nudge my business and I nudge my team in different directions by the things that I demonstrate and the, the values that I work to and the behaviors that I show. But I would never aim and never really say that I can fundamentally change the culture of the business. There, there's a really interesting um, genesis to where we are today as a business. The two founders of this business, Edwina and Clive Dunn, had a phenomenally strong cultural purpose and, an, uh, and a really strong sense of what the values they wanted in their business and the values of the people they wanted to work with. And I think, again, it's taken me two years of ignorance to really spot that they're still there, they're still sitting there as a bedrock in the company about curiosity, about respect, about all of these kind of things that are right at the heart. I think the, 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 the implication of the question though is, how do you use culture to make change? And I think I'd almost turn it on its head and say, there are some things that we do by making changes, you pull along the culture. So making changes in how we organize ourselves, making changes about how much we measure how good we are. One of the goals for my chief data scientist is prove to me that we're the best, because we always say we're the best. Show me objectively that we are comparing our data science with the best in the industry. That mm -hmm. feels like a boring KPI nudge, right? But actually what it's really saying is lift yourselves up and be honest and celebrate when we are truly the best, which we have done in a number of, number of direct head-to-heads with some of our competitors, but also have the humility to go, yeah, you're right, we're a bit crap there, aren't we? Let's go back, let's improve, let's, you know, stretch the boundaries of what we do and have that humility to improve and move things forward. So I think, I, to kind of recap, I, I don't believe that many technical leaders, or in fact many leaders, profoundly move the culture through a cultural purpose. What they do mm -hmm. is by working to a set of values and the behaviors they show and the things that they measure, the things they celebrate, the things that they go nuts over, shift 
and nudge a culture in the, in the direction they want it to take. And there's a difference between a culture and behaviours. And you can, you can have a culture of inclusiveness and, and collaboration, but if you never make decisions, who cares? Who cares? Yep. And I think, you know, we have, one of our values is collaboration. And yet, I get hugely frustrated when collaboration means 10 people not making a decision and deferring to each other. Just somebody call it. It may be right, it may be wrong, but just call it. Let's move on. Uh, there's a behavioral change that affects the cultural and, and maintains the cultural essence of a business. Let's talk about processes next. I mean, your organization is in a very peculiar, very special place. You're in, in the middle of consumers, millions, billions of, of consumers, um, the retailers uh, on, on one side, on, on the other side, and then the, the product companies, the CPGs. And so you are collecting data on all of, for all of these three parties, and you have to make sure that you, you I mean, you, you have very, very, um, uh, special knowledge about the consumers, about the CPGs, about the retailers that you can only share with part of your community and so on. So, so in your processes, how do you manage that? How do you make sure that the consumers, the retailers and the CPGs are, are well taken care of? Sure. And, and, and thank you for the question because actually it's, frankly, it's what makes our business hard. Data science is easy if you're smart enough, and I have lots of smart people. Maintaining security, maintaining privacy, maintaining all of those things that are frankly the hygiene factors of being a data science business is what makes it so difficult to do. And you know, the simple answer is you know, we apply um, uh, constraints at both logical and physical level for almost everything we have. We have um, a, a significant um, process control around approving any new data source. I mean, sounds obvious, right? But I mean, any change to the data that we have that's take, being taken into the company. We, one of the uh, transformational things that we've done in the last two years is we now moved all of our points of ingestion to a single platform. You can see how this goes because that allows us to ensure that we have the same cultural and technical processes to review and ensure that um, segmentation and, and isolation is achieved across, rather than allowing things to, to drift into an organization or out of an organization. Um, one of my probably most combative um, weekly meetings is our data governance board. Um, sounds kind of grand, right? And sounds, you can, you can imagine sort of you know, 12 wise people sitting around a table opining <laughs> on whether we should, what we should do with a video feed. Um, but it's exactly right that we sit there and agonize over could a, a data type, could a use of data be used for profiling, racial profiling? Could it be used, misused in some way for some other nefarious way? Or is, by bringing this in, are we opening up um, our our clients, our retailers and our CPGs to, to a, comp a competitive situation that um, they're unaware of. And most importantly, the, the processes behind how do we make sure the consumer is hugely protected from their data being abused in some way. And one of the, the, the joys of the sort of science that we do is, of course, the aggregation of, con 
consumer transactions allows you to post-process things in, a, in, a, in an aggregate, non-returnable way. So you, you're not dealing with something that can identify you or me. What you're dealing yep. with is a cohort of behavior and, and using that for your analysis. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great searching question. It's the thing that obviously um, keeps me awake at night and I'm sure keeps my chief executive awake at night. Um, and weirdly, and rather wonderfully, it's one of the things that I think many retailers, it's one of the reasons many retailers come to us, because they've understood how hard it is to do. Okay, let's talk about technology and, and, and open technology. I mean, how important, and let's, let's talk about open source and about cloud. Uh, so on how important is open source in, in, in uh, Donhambi? There's a slightly kind of mischievous answer to that, which is, if you think with the number of data scientists that we have, um, are, we have an internal open source community, if you think of it that way, as in we have a, a huge number of contributors to a series yep. of mathematical and computational models that are then shared, improved on, stretched, uh, and used. So you could say that we have the world's largest open source community for retail analytic modeling. Um, and it's not if you accept that as a premise, then it's not accidental some of the tooling that we use internally in order to, to facilitate that. You know, all of our data scientists use internal version of GitHub, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there is a little bit of a, um, a kind of exciting prospect there as well, which is at some point, how much do we open up our platforms to third parties to participate in that open source community? Obviously not exposing everything we do, um, but helping to move forward to a greater good some of that, that, that piece. And we're already beginning it with um, some of our clients where our analytics, we're, our analytics platform, we're an enabling some of our clients to also participate in and contribute. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we use open source. A lot of uh, science models uses open source, um, and we use that. And in some of our cloud fabric, um, we would use a completely expected set of open source components there as well. So it is something we're committed to. Um, it's something that obviously we have to have significant control over, not just from a, uh, a licensing perspective, but also security vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And also mm -hmm. a behavioral one, which is it, going back to that point of it, creating a culture of sharing an idea and sharing a model, and at the same time understanding that that cannot be shared between clients is a fine line. Um, and as long as you make a distinction between here is a model, of course, that we own, and here is a model with a client's data, which is definitely not something we own, then that's, that's, that's where so much of our complexity sits. Uh, so going forward, I expect us to continue with that open source use. And as I've said just now, the we have a strong inst instinct that broadening that community, especially if you can imagine retailers, especially these sub-scale retailers, combining together to create volume to compete with the, mm -hmm. with the big guys, um, then it, employing their teams with ours and mixing it together in some way creates a very interesting proposition. 
Okay, great. Now let's talk about cloud. I can, I can imagine that you have traditionally a lot of data centers, that you're moving all that to the cloud, and that all specifically you're using some of the data analytical uh, platforms that are available in cloud nowadays. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm going to say, right, which is cloud is boring. Um, for for boring. us, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a, um, uh, a, a kind of transformational, exciting, strategic step. It's an obvious one. And the reason it's obvious is, of course, if you think about what do we do, we, the cloud is almost perfectly designed for the computational load that we have. You know, we, we want to run extremely intensive models for short, short periods of time and then collapse the infrastructure. And, and also, we'd like to be put in the position that we could share the opportunity of our, with our clients that if they want to run it at 11, knock yourselves out, we'll just pass through the costs. And if you can only afford to run it at one, maybe it's a little bit slower or the sample rate is a little bit narrower. So you can imagine cloud allows very different pricing models in the future as well. But setting that aside, you know, we've had a very long history with exceptional proprietary hardware um, in our mm -hmm. data centers because frankly wow. that was the only route to execute the models that we, we've historically had. And we retain an investment in some of that hardware. But our overall um, direction of travel is moving more and more of our functional load into the cloud. And again, in the last two years that I've been here, we've moved all of our data ingestion, all of our analyst platforms into a GCP hosted uh, tenant. Um, mm -hmm. We've deployed some of our products in GCP and we're developing now, we, after our announcement of our partnership with Microsoft, also supporting our products in Azure as well. Um, now that for us creates some challenges because obviously we want to um, deliver an extraordinary performance irrespective of our clients' hosting preferences. But equally, um, we don't want to um, lock ourselves into a particular platform and, and exploit all the functionality. So to your question, you know, we don't use big, big query apart from some very specific things we do. We don't use Synapse. We try and stay above the Kubernetes layer. We try and stay somewhat abstract to the, the actual hosting environment. Um, and frankly, see how the market develops. You know, we see that there's mm -hmm. an arms race by the two big providers. I mean, in retail, clearly, Amazon is a challenge. So it's really between GCP and, <laughs> and Azure. Um, we were delighted to announce our partnership with Cosell partnership with Microsoft at NRF, and it was great to see my chief executive, Satya, on the stage. Um, they know, Microsoft know that we're in a very interesting space. Um, and we're seeing, and it's delight to see the same kind of support from Google as well. You know, these, we feel like children, right? There's these two huge players that have these extraordinary technology platforms and great teams and, and kind of ace everything in their space. And we hang out with them and we do stuff. And you know, when one of my guys presented at the Google conference because of our use of Dataproc was the hottest anywhere outside of banking, um, that was kind of cool for us, right? And that, you know, cool. it, yep. at, but we're quite modest. We, 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 um, we almost underestimate sometimes how cool some of the things we do are. Um, so cloud for us is definitely where we're going. We have a question, strategic question, which is how fast do we move our last data centers and, and, and collapse them? Um, 
which is the same, I suspect, as every CTO. Um, but the joy for us is that cloud-based computing for computational analytics is the perfect solution. And the fact that we have two of the world's greatest technology companies um, helping us make best use of their platforms is an utter delight, a real delight. David, let's talk about some of the most exciting technologies, some of the most exciting new technologies that you see appearing and, and, and that you really think they're going to change the world. <laughs> oh, it's, it's <laughs> what you'd expect me to say is, uh, you know, the, the video tracking in store that, that kind of figures out for your gait analysis, whether you're interested in buying oranges or pears, right? Or you're going to ask me about, um, I don't know, the biometrics of improving the security of what you do, etc. And I, I, none of those particularly kind of excite me. I mean, they're just, they're just data points for us, okay? Um, I think there's, there's technology trends rather than technologies that interest me. So the first trend is, is essentially the um, commoditization of compute. Mm -hmm. And the reason that trend is so important to me, I'll tell you a little story. When I first joined, one of my most extraordinary data scientists here in the UK came to me and said, David, David, I've, I've worked for the last three months and I've reduced the, the time it takes to do this extraordinary piece of analysis from seven days to seven hours. And I went, well, that's kind of interesting. Why not seven milliseconds? And he mm -hmm. was heartbroken, right? You know, he's <laughs> the smartest guy that I know. And it just obviously set a, a bar that he genuinely thought wasn't achievable. Two months later, at that same all hands, he presented the same piece of work being executed in seven milliseconds. Okay, he frigged it a bit. He, he, he messed with the, the the, the data preparation, he even retuned the video driver because he ran it on his laptop to show what was possible. But the point of the story was, he figured that if you, if you wanted to get through the next level of, of speed, you had to have a huge amount of parallelization. And to have that level of parallelization, you had to completely unassemble how he was doing his computation. Now, so the point of that is, historically, the... Um, the, the, the cost of computing that result would have meant you would have never tried. And today, as I said, it, it, we have a, an arms race in the, uh, the cloud world, which suits us, which is the pure cost of computation is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the accuracy of the results goes up accordingly or the price goes up, goes down accordingly. And we can tune yeah. between those two things. So I think the other technology trend, again, it's not a specific technology. It's the ability to share and, and have mass contribution to moving something forward. So mm -hmm. whether that is um, the trend in essentially an open source approach to data science sharing, or whether it is um, opening up platforms so um, different vendors can connect to our platform through APIs, etc. Again, sounds a little bit boring and a little bit obvious, but it becomes a, a trend in its own right that enables future things. I think the, the, the last piece is, um, is, is also just the proximity to the, to the consumer. And this is where there's a fine line, okay? So, um, 
what are all the trends, especially at the moment, is obviously being able to tell where people are and who they are coming into contact with. And what were not just what did they buy, but also what didn't they buy? Um, what, what were their decision making? All of those things are quite worrisome, if not thoughtfully and carefully managed. So I think the other trend, and we're seeing it with, um, uh, or we're seeing the first signs of it possibly with the CCPA legislation in California, which is this sort of recognition that it is possible that persisting data about any consumer in its own right will become increasingly unacceptable. And one of our exciting things that our chief data scientist is, is developing is it's just conceptually essentially thinking of cohorts simply as a function, never persisting data about them. And I think that's a, a trend that, you know, obviously we're not the only people um, experimenting in this area, but it's, it's a trend that will be profound and goes straight back to that computational test again, which is you have to have execution cost at infinitesimally small real dollar value. Okay. Let's talk about your team. I mean, you have a huge team. I understand around 1,200 people in total, and, and you have more uh, tech guys and data science uh, people. How are they organized, and, and how do you see your fundamental role in the organization? <laughs> um, let's do it in reverse order. So um, there is a, uh, there's a sort of lesson I've learned through, through mistakes, which is I am naturally an interventionalist. Okay, and what I mean by that is, you know, I spent half of my career being celebrated for my ability to step in and do, step in and mm -hmm. fix, step in correct, understand, be as good as the people that I work with. Um, and as, as the, the challenges are bigger and the teams are bigger and the, the frankly, the stakes are bigger, the, the the change in my career in the second half is understanding that I'm there to, to nudge rather than intervene. So mm -hmm. if I describe my organization, you could describe it as an organization of organizations. So I have a CIO. She runs a huge estate of client business and employee systems across all of our offices around the world. In, in many normal businesses, she would be the top technologist in, the, in our business. I then have two CTOs, one running our media business and one running our uh, customer insights business. Again, in many businesses, they would be the only chief technologist in that business. Same in data scientists, chief data scientists. So I think the, the kind of the theme there is the way I have tried to organize, even though it's clearly imperfect, has been to create leaders that feel like they are truly leading their areas of the business and to consider their area of the business of being complete. Um, and, and as I said, sometimes it's imperfect, there's still the intervention, there's still the nudge, there's still the correction. Um, but where it's been most successful is where, and in fact, I've said it in their goals, I am successful when you gang up on me. I am successful when the two of you join together and beat me down on something. Because mm -hmm. as individuals, that, it, 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 there's a weakness there, but when you combine together, then there's a huge strength. 
So the other connection is really how we fit into the rest of our organisation. So it's a bit of a non-answer to the question, which is less how I organise and more how the rest of my executive organise. You know, we play with the boundaries between solutions and products and development. We play with the boundaries of, um, of human resources and finance. Um, and in fact, you know, if you ask me what is one of my most important roles today, it is actually understanding the fundamental economics, not of our, just of my technology team, but also the fundamental economics of my business so I can nudge it to a better place. So how would you describe your management style? How do you make sure that your people get successful? Um, I think I've kind of touched on it throughout this interview. There's, if I do it by, by example and by contrast, you know, I always felt that I had to be an interventionist. I felt that I had to understand everything and be capable of spotting what was going wrong and then diving in heroically to save the day, etc. And, and in fact, I worked for a number of people that positively encouraged and, and developed that. Um, I, I hope that it isn't just because I'm now 30 years into my career, thank you for that <laughs> at the beginning, and I'm old and, and etc. And I hope it is generally a little bit wiser that the style is a nudge. And I don't mean nudge theory, the kind of socioeconomic, you know, making sure that your graffiti isn't done, etc. But there are elements of that, which is a nudge in the right direction on KPIs, mm -hmm. which is a kind of, and, and I don't mean a training KPI, I mean a leading KPI, a nudge in the direction of, of forgetting the budget for a quarter just so you hire a better individual in a role, a nudge on a behavior, a nudge on challenging something, all of these things which allows me to then to move the organization which um, is complex and under pressure and holding at operating at huge stakes to just correct itself and move into a better place. And it's interesting watching my chief executive nudge me as well. And he, he said something very interesting a few months ago, which is he, he found it quite frustrating, but he, he allows it to happen, which is watching his executives make mistakes. Okay. And that's I cool. thought that's a great lesson because I, I stop at that I find it frustrating and I tend to not allow my executives make mistakes as I see them. But I'm trying to channel that and learn that a little bit because, of course, if you act like a parent to the team, which is a sort of incredibly condescending position to be, the team will act like children. If you act like a peer to the team, then the peers will gang up on you and give you a hard time, and you just hope that that takes you to a better place. Um, uh, actually, maybe I should just be a parent and tell them what to do. It might be easier <laughs> life. We'll get back to the condescending uh, bit a little bit later in this interview. <laughs> David, what do you let's talk about your leadership style and 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 let's phrase it in the sense the the people around you in, in in your profession in your professional world what do you think they say about you when you're not around <laughs> and they talk about you oh that's pretty do you know that's one of the interview questions i use i shouldn't be saying this because people will know i always say if i call up bob what's he going to say about you because <laughs> i know bob and he's going to go, oh, he's brilliant, blah, blah. No, no. Okay, set all that aside. What is he going to tell me when I ask him, I'm just about to hire Gloria, 
what is the deal? So, so I love the fact you've turned the so table what's, on me. What's the deal? What's the what's deal? The, what's the deal? <laughs> okay, so, so the first thing is what would they say? That I am um, very inconsistent. I get extremely passionate about an individual topic and then I get mm -hmm. very bored by it. Just at the point, typically, that the person who is developing that topic is getting success. So it can create a dynamic where, oh, I've just achieved, but you've moved on to something else. Second thing is, I, I, I'm incredibly forgetful. I will ask the same, I'll ask three different people to do the same thing. I just can't help it because it's that urgency of just, just, just get it done. Yeah, but you asked Sarah to do that last week and, and Bob is creating a new vision for that and can't you remember anything? And I suspect that's a, definitely a little bit about old age. Um, and the third thing is, I, I, I take things extremely personally. And this goes, you know, the, the, there is clearly a, um, a stereotypical CTO or chief executive of a business being extremely hard, extremely um, uh, impermeable to to demands and poking because of course the, the opportunities to, to fall over are, are infinite. Um, but I do, I do react with emotion, I react with, I take criticism and I take failure personally um, and sometimes that's to good effect because people know that it's authentic and it's real and they don't have to figure out whether I'm annoyed. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, it gets in the way of stuff as well. And I'm sure they've then got a list of 10 other things that they would never tell me, but those are the ones they've told me. So David, you, um, let's talk about the positive sides uh, of, of you, because you mentioned a couple of things that could be improved, but you shared with us your, uh, your personality type, which is an INTP, uh, also known as the logician. And so the strengths, the typical strengths of INTPs is that they're great analysts, that they're abstract thinkers, imaginative, uh, open-minded, enthusiastic, objective, honest, and straightforward. Which of these resonate really well with you? <laughs> um, well, let, let me slightly turn the question around. Some of the negatives of an INTP, I actually think are huge strengths. So, mm -hmm. okay. um, the, 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 the taking things personally, the sensitivity, the, and the, the, the occasional and irregular empathy is actually a quite a powerful thing, I think. Um, there's also um, something that I'm sure that many CTOs feel, which is I have constant imposter sy syndrome. You know, <laughs> I've worked in some of the most extraordinary technology companies in the world with amazing executives and I'm the techie in the corner that you know can you fix the video type of thing right um, so I think that that sense of um, of not being worthy and not being as smart and and being that little bit of vulnerability creates an exceptional strength in its own right which is one people tune into it I, I love the fact that when I walk into a meeting and somebody's trying to explain something really complicated and I say I don't understand, the joy is, one, it tends to improve through further explanation, of course, as most ideas too, 
Um, but the really funny one is, the more I say I don't understand, the more people look me in the eye and say, David, I know you're just testing us. I'm sure you do understand. So the expectation of quality and, uh, and experience is, is kind, of, kind of cool. The other thing is, um, I, I, I'm quite mercurial about acquiring new knowledge. And I am forgetful. If you take those two things together, and I, I'm, I'm reminded by something that uh, happened a uh, hundred million years ago. So imagine that I'm at school and I am, it's, I've just taken a bunch of exams in preparation for my A-levels. And, uh, and amazingly, the results are really good. And I say amazingly because to my parents, they see no work whatsoever. And they see very little dedication to either my music practice or my studies and stuff like this. You know, I kind of play guitar and go and play football and stuff. Um, and the teachers are kind of quite confused as well because apparently I show no particular inclination in class either. Um, I only really study the things I particularly enjoy. And my physics teacher says to my parents, we don't quite understand it. I think they were slightly suspicious that maybe I'd been cheating. And my mother, who is, is an incredibly insightful woman to this day, just came out with a quip that has, that has stayed with me the rest of the whole, my whole life. He just, she just said, yeah, that's, that's just David through and through. He uses a huge, a very small amount of information to huge effect. And I think to this day, I've turned that from being, as I said, for the first half of my career, as being, that's a deficit item, to the second half of my career as being an absolute skill. I try and accumulate a small amount of information on a huge range of topics and try and apply it to great effect. And when I get it right, it's brilliant. And when I'm clearly the thickest kid in the class, that's not great as well. So there's the, there's the essence of it. And when are you happy? When at the end of the day you say, this was a great day, this was really the best. What makes you really happy at the, in, in your profession? <laughs> okay. So the first thing is the things that make me the happiest are not work. Okay. You know, I love my family, I love my dogs, I love where I live, I love music, I love all just, just being in nature, etc., etc. But I also love working. So the, the first part of the answer is I actually get a great amount of happiness from simply working no matter how challenging it is. And maybe that's a sort of subconscious imposter syndrome and I keep reminding myself that I'm maybe not as bad as perhaps I think I am. Uh, but what I'm about to say is going to sound quite despotic, which is <laughs> when I see the human machine working really well, I feel extremely content. Now, mm -hmm. going back to that point about computers doing computer stuff and people doing people stuff, is it, that could be misinterpreted right. But when I see a team that I... Whether it's a startup that I've been in, there's five of us, or there's a team of 500 data scientists collaborating together on a perfect outcome, it's the same feeling. It's that human machine with no intervention, no nudge, no nothing from me. I am merely an observer of what's going on. Just fills me with delight. And it is a combination of seeing, of course, and just enough empathy to see people's own delight in success, but also the despotic bit, which is, ah, the machine I've created is working perfectly. <laughs>
Let's talk about your values. I understand you have three grown-up kids. What are the values that you have given them in life? Uh, and, and give a couple examples of that. I think the, the... It's interesting. I don't know how you feel about your children, but I, I always wonder whether we give enough values to our children or whether they, their memories and their, the behaviours they copy are a little bit pick and mix of what suits them at the time. But let, let, let me try and trying to kind of raise it above. I would hope that the key value that I've given to all of my children is that actually working really hard pays off. And I okay. don't mean materially, even though they've had a good life, but I mean I enjoy what I do, I love what I do, and the, one of the great satisfactions, as you know, of, of working hard is you get to choose what you do. And yep. if I look at what my, especially my daughter, who's a, a psychologist, is, is following her career path, you know, it's never going to pay well. It's always going to be hugely challenging. Um, and yet she loves it and she has made the choices and she spent, you know, she, she's done her two lots of masters, probably will end up doing her PhD. Um, mm -hmm. She has chosen that hard work allows her to follow what she wants to do. Um, and likewise, my, my, my middle son, who um, was just like me, super lazy, just like doing sport and, and, and playing in a band, um, he seems to be following the same path as well. He, he's understood that if he wants something, he needs to work really, really, really hard for it. Um, and as a parent, that's quite hard to land sometimes when you make life materially very easy for them. And, you know, I feel very blessed that Life has been very easy for me and very easy for them as well. Um, the, third, the third lesson, though, is I, and I'm interested in my youngest son, my stepson. And he, he's a phenomenal sportsman. Um, he plays county-level cricket. He plays football at a high level as well. And he's sort of trying to figure out, does he follow a professional career, sports career or, or through his studies? Um, and last season, um, he was playing, as I said, at county-level cricket. And he didn't always get picked. And he, he was at that point of being so frustrated. You know, he's a, he's a spin bowler. It's quite a, you either have a great day or you get completely destroyed on the field. Um, and he was really beginning to lose his confidence and really not enjoying what should be a wonderfully enjoyable game. Um, and he, he, he started to show those behaviors of not wanting to be picked. So, he wasn't available, he had other things and all the rest of it. So what I did is I wrote a letter to the county and said, in his, in, with his voice, um, thank you for your support since I was 10 and all the opportunities and the tour of India and blah, 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 but I don't wish to play at county level anymore. Okay? And I said, do you want me to send this on your behalf? And it just brought him to that tipping point of saying, okay, I'm being lazy. I, and I wasn't being mean to him, I said, you have to show respect. There's, there's hundreds of thousands of people that would give their right arm to be playing at this level, so don't be so selfish. But either back out gracefully or commit to it. And love, wonderfully, he's recommitted to his sport. Now, what is the behavior there? What have, what's the value? It is respect. It's the respect the people who are are supporting you, but also respect the people that are not having the opportunities you have. And I've really enjoyed watching, 
and he, he had an amazing innings actually a few weeks ago, five wickets, which had, for, for a game for a spin bowler is an extraordinary outcome. Um, and I've really watched not his cricket, but the maturing of a young man, and that's been fantastic. Okay. David, you clearly had a, a very successful and interesting life, but then, uh, but what was the worst thing that's ever happened to you and how did you overcome that? Okay. Um, I, I have a kind of slightly philosophical position on worst things and best <laughs> things, right? You know, we okay. are made up of a series of worst things and a series of best things. And I think rather than answer the question of trying to identify one very bad thing, it would be to say that I've, I feel that to overcome them, it is always about finding the joy in things and being able to create a balance. Any, anybody that says they never have bad things and it's all about their you know, perfect life, you know it's completely bogus. Um, I, think, I think the other thing is also just one of facing into a worst thing rather than mm -hmm. completely locking it away. Um, you know, we have a, um, a very strong uh, employee assistance program here in Dunhumby. Um, and I, we also have a community of kind of for essentially expose, exposing and presenting mental health as a really important subject. Now, the only reason I mention it in the context of Dunhumby is I am the world's biggest advocate of using a counsellor when something bad happens. You know, someone very close to me died very, very young. The use of a grief counsellor to, 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 to explore what I was feeling as she was dying and um, developing a, a kind of mental model of how to move forward was really important. One of our colleagues committed suicide a few months ago. To bring a counsellor into the office, the virtual office, and allow the entire office to spend time just exploring their thoughts and feelings um, has been very, very important. But then if I take a slightly more jovial approach. <laughs> so here, many years ago when I was at Betfair, um, uh, there were two of us competing for the CTO job, the top job. So I ran all the development team, another guy ran uh, all the infrastructure side. The CTO became the chief executive. There's now a vacant position. And I expect to get the role because obviously I'm the coolest kid in class, right? You know, I'm, <laughs> clearly I'm a developer. I, I know my subject very well. I've made a huge progress on the community there. We've, we've completely aced a whole load of breakthrough, transformational pieces in our business. And the other guy gets the job. And I talked to my professional coach at the time. And of course, I'm boohoo and woe is me. And, and she asked three very, very direct questions. So she said, David, first thing is, did you actually tell anybody you want that job? And I went, obviously not. I just assumed that I was clearly the best guy. And she kind of did a Homer Simpson of, oh, you know, really? That's pretty <laughs> stupid. Um, second thing, and, and by the way, the other guy had spent three years telling everybody that's exactly the job he wanted. And all credit to him, that's exactly where he ended up. The second thing is, she said, why do you want that job? Um, and I said, well, you know, it's a kind of natural next part of my career and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, it's just vanity, isn't it? Because <laughs> the job you actually have, which I ran the venture capital fund in Betfair, and actually it was the genesis of spinning out um, LMAX with some of my colleagues. I had literally the best job in the business. Everybody was jealous of our team, including receiving 
uh, 10 million in capital from Betfair to go and essentially go and build our own business from scratch. And yet this guy was running a hugely complex estate and, and spending 24 hours a day worrying that things were going right. So that challenge of, of, of just, do you really want it and why? Um, the point of the story is, it, it felt like the worst moment, as in it felt like a personal slight against me. I felt like all of that effort and those years of endless toil weren't paying off, and yet what happened next made the rest of my career. And part of it was the intervention of, I could say a counsellor, but essentially it was a professional coach, just challenging me and going, huh, you stupid idiot. Um, and what happened next? LMAX happened next. I then went to Trainline. You know, it, it really, that little bit of humility and little bit of a nudge from a, uh, an extremely insightful individual. And I still cite her as probably the most influential person in my career. That one meeting. Very interesting. Now, what is your, or do you have a personal mantra? If you have to make difficult decisions, do you have a personal mantra that you can rely on that you go back to? I love, I love the idea of a personal mantra or um, affirmations and, and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So the answer is no. But there are a couple of lessons that I've been taught. I had an amazing chief executive at Trainline and he had two things. One is <laughs> prepare really well and then reduce it down to three points. And I used to watch him. It didn't matter whether he was meeting with the chief executive of Virgin or First Group or the government. He would always sit there with a piece of paper with three points in front of him. And he had that extraordinary skill of very comfortable discourse. And he always made sure he covered the points. Mm -hmm. That for me, is that reductionism, because of course the real thing is he had to prepare for 10 hours to have the three points, <laughs> was a real beauty. And for someone as... You know, when I used to be on, I was on the board of Trainline and he coached me board meeting after board meeting after board meeting to say less, to get my message down to a single line. Yes, you know, you're the smartest kid here. You, you want another 20 things to say. Do not do them because you've only got one purpose for today. And that is to secure the funding for blah or to ensure that they're behind you on the next round or whatever it is. Um, and the other mantra piece that he was very, very good at, and he, did, he, he debriefed me on the, on the exit, um, was you, you're, too con you're too considered about people. And what I mean by that is you ended up firing these three people over the five years you were there, and you knew from day one they shouldn't be there. And it took you a year, two years, four years to get there. If you feel that it's wrong and a person isn't right for the team, they were all amazing individuals, by the way. I mean, this is, they just weren't the right values and behaviors and skills for the company. If you feel that somebody isn't right, call it earlier. And I'm really trying to, to do that myself today and with my team. Stop struggling through. Okay, occasionally you may get it wrong, but you owe it to everybody else, team of 1,200 people, mm -hmm. to make hard decisions faster and then put up with the consequences of that decision. Stop agonizing about it, move forward. If you would have to mentor yourself, your 20-year your younger self, 
what is it that you advise would you give yourself or more generic people that watch this video and they say oh i want to be a cto of such a uh, an, an exciting company what is the advice how can they make a career like yours okay so so the first thing is and i've i've been to various universities and i've i've pitched to to undergraduates and of course i have I tell my story, which is, oh yeah, don't bother finishing your degree if you get offered a job by Google, go and do the job, right? Um, it's not what every professor wants to hear me saying to their undergraduates. But there is a serious piece there, which is if you have great opportunities, just go for them. It's mm -hmm. just try it. Most things are recoverable from, I got lucky, it could have worked out badly, but maybe something else interesting would have happened. So I think that's a good nudge at any time in a career. Mm -hmm. I think the other nudge is the, um, and this is probably the most, so it's going to sound really profound, right? As in it's not profound at all, which is everybody is an imposter, except that every single person around the table is an imposter. They all have worries about stuff they don't know. They all th are agonizing that they're making the wrong decision. They're all imperfect managers. And in some ways, the more perfect they look, that's likely the less perfect they are. And once you get that feeling, it's like imagining everybody with no clothes on, right? You just go, <laughs> oh, okay, we're just as crap as each other and we're just as good as each other. So let me stop agonizing about that and then focus on the stuff I do know rather than the stuff I don't know. I wish somebody had told me that halfway through rather than I, I, I spent so much time in the first half of my career worrying about what I didn't know. And as a technologist, we all know, right? You don't know most things because the subject is so expansive. It's so difficult. Oh, I just got that sorted. And then somebody asks you this one. There was a, a sort of cap to that is I went on an amazing presentation course once. And it was, it was the usual type of, type of rubbish, right, about how you order your thoughts and all the rest of it. But here was the, the real breakthrough piece, which is in preparation for the course, they asked all of us as executives to go and prepare a 20-slide presentation. And then, as soon as we got up to present it, they said, right, you only have one minute, so present it now. <laughs> and of course, it was this nudge to simplicity, to synopsis, to etc. Very, very clever, very good. And over the week, we got better and better to the point, a classic elevator pitch. But the other one, and for me, with all my imposter syndrome and insecurities, was transformational was the technique of simply saying, figure out the worst questions you expect to be asked and you're worrying about, and look into the camera or the people and say, I'm here to talk about blah, blah, and blah, and if you want to know about blah, blah, and blah, I simply don't know. I'll go and find out for you if you want to know about that, but rest on your chairs, there's no point asking me, I haven't got it covered. Now let's focus on what we do know and what the subject is today. And I've done that in a number of really, really difficult, confrontational, um, uh, difficult, uh, complex situations. And it's completely relaxed me to um, one of offense rather than defense. And that's a magical place to be. And I wish somebody had taught me that presentation trick right from the beginning. Of course, you better make sure you do know the stuff you're meant to know. And you better be, make sure you have at hand the other stuff, because otherwise it just looks like you're being lazy. But it is a major step forward. And I work with some of the graduates here on exactly those kind of techniques of just relax, focus on what you know. 
Okay, David, and with that, I would like to thank you uh, for your time and for sharing all your knowledge and insights and experience. So thank you so much, uh, and I hope to uh, see you soon when we can travel again and when I can meet you in London. It's been a really interesting session. Thank you for your questions as well. Fascinating, made me really reflect. And, and indeed, it'd be good to meet face-to-face -face soon.